Well, if you have a copy of the scriptures, let me invite you once again to turn to the New Testament, to the little book of Philemon, the last of Paul's uh, letters and uh, his collection of his uh, writings, the last of his personal letters. And uh, this one uh, has the title, at least in the authorized version, The Epistle of Paul to Philemon. And we have been on a, a slow journey of doing some short expositions through this little 25-verse letter. And we're at the last portion of it. We're going to look at verses 20 through 25. And so let me invite you as you're able. Let's stand again in honor of the reading and hearing of God's word. Again, I'm reading from Philemon and verses 20 through 25. We're in the apostle writes. Yea, brother, let me have joy of thee in the Lord. Refresh my bowels in the Lord. Having confidence in thy obedience, I wrote unto thee, knowing that thou wilt also do more than I say. But withal, prepare me also a lodging, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be given unto you. There salute thee Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, Marcus, Aristarchus, Demas, Lucas, my, fam- my fellow laborers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Let's join in prayer. <clears throat> Gracious and loving God, we give thee thanks for this little letter and the usefulness that it had in its immediate uh, sending to Philemon, and then the usefulness that it's had through literally centuries and thousands of years. And with awe, we recognize that we're holding in our hands and we're reading and considering uh, something that millions of other Christians over the ages have read, contemplated, applied for their spiritual profit. Help us in this generation to receive this not as the word of, of men, but as what, is it, what it is in truth, the word of God. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So we've got this little letter, letter of Philemon. Paul, the apostle, is imprisoned, probably in Rome writing this little epistle, and it's a personal letter. It deals with a controversial topic. He writes it on behalf of a man named Onesimus, who was a new believer. He had been a slave in the household of Philemon, and he had run away, and somehow he had encountered Paul, and he had been converted, and then uh, he had ministered to Paul while, while Paul was imprisoned, And now Paul is sending him back to make amends with Philemon. And he is urging Philemon to receive this man, Onesimus, as a Christian brother. Although Paul had the apostolic authority that he could have commanded Philemon, he could have said, as an apostle, I command that you do this. He did not choose to use that type of more heavy-handed authority, but he used his rhetoric. He used his words to try to convince Philemon to do what was right, 
to receive Onesimus not only as a slave in the flesh, but now as a brother in the Lord. And so this is what he said in verse 16. He talks about receiving him, not now as a servant, but above a servant, a brother beloved, especially to me. But how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord. And so this is the purpose for him doing this. In this last part of the letter, these last couple of verses we're going to meditate upon, it seems to me that Paul is primarily writing about the confidence that he has in Philemon as a Christian man and probably the elder of the church that meets in his house, that he will not just do the bare minimum that he needs to do to get by with respect to his treatment of Onesimus. But he will go above and beyond in love to do even more than Paul is asking him. We've probably all of us had the experience, if we haven't, we probably will, of, of working some kind of job where we had a coworker who did not uh, put his all into the work. Anybody had an experience like that? You've, you've had a job somewhere and you, you've tried to do your best, but there's, there's somebody there working beside you who is not putting his best into the work. Rather, he's sort of a clock watcher. He's just biding his time, trying to do the minimal number of things he needs to do or she needs to do to get by till the shift gets over. And they're not going to do, lift a finger to do anything more than is absolutely necessary. Uh, they're a clock watcher, waiting for the clock to ring and to get, to get out of work and try to get out of, uh, uh, try to get away with doing as little as possible. Basically, what Paul is doing at the end of this letter is urging Philemon not to be that kind of person from a Christian perspective. Not to be the kind of person who does just the minimum with respect to receiving Onesimus back, but to be gracious with him in a manner of super abundance. Just as earlier he had said in verse 14 that he wanted Philemon to do what was right by Onesimus, not merely out of necessity, but willingly. And now he's going to ask him to do more than he's being asked to do. So let's turn now and look at these last few verses and see what we can learn from them. And I want to suggest that we can discern at least six brief lessons from these concluding words. First of all, the first lesson is in verse 20. And we read how Paul asked that he might have joy and refreshment in the godly behavior of Philemon in these circumstances. And so he says, yea, brother, let me have joy in thee in the Lord. Refresh my bowels in the Lord. Notice, first of all, in verse 20, that Paul calls Philemon his brother. Christian conversations uh, do go well when they begin, but with us calling one another brother, brother, reminding us that we have a bond in the faith. We're not adversaries. We are brethren. They are brothers from another mother. They are spiritual brothers. They are part of the same spiritual family. 
And Paul is reminding Philemon that this is a fraternal conversation among fellow believers. He says to him, let me have joy in the in the Lord. Let me be let me be made uh, exceedingly glad by your behavior in the Lord and not disappointed. Let me let me have joy in you in the Lord. And it's interesting if you read through Paul's letters, he often uh, says things like this when he talks to uh, Christians in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14, he's writing to the church at Corinth. And he says, As also ye have acknowledged us in part, that we are your rejoicing, even as ye also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. In other words, he's saying, when Christ returns in glory and Christ sees your faithfulness, I'm going to be so glad. I'm going to be filled with so much joy that you have been faithful at the time when Christ comes. Likewise, when he writes to the church at Philippi in Philippians 4.1, he says, Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. Wouldn't it be funny if we started around here, maybe at lunch, we started referring to each other. Hey, my joy and my crown. Would it sound kind of weird? I don't know. But we should, if we don't say it outright, we should be so praying for, pulling for, cheering for one another that we would say, you know, when you are obeying Christ, that brings me joy. You are my joy when I see you succeeding in following Christ. Likewise, when he wrote to the church at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 2.19, he said, for what is our hope our, or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? What's, what's my joy? What's my crown? What's my ground for rejoicing? It's if when Christ returns, he finds you faithful. That's what will make me happy. That's what, that's what I will find extremely satisfying if this takes place. And then in the second half of verse 20, he says, refresh my bowels in the Lord. That that AV language sounds a little bit strange there, but bowels means the gut, the, the, the seat of your feelings and emotions and passions. And so he's saying, refresh the inmost part of me, the deepest levels of me by observing your godly actions. When I think about the way you're going to treat Onesimus, even though you could come down hard on him, but you're going to receive him as a brother in Christ. I think about how you're going to do that. Man, that's going to refresh me inwardly when I see how well you, you behave toward him. And this is interesting because this is, this is calling to mind some similar language that Paul already used earlier in the letter. Look back in verse 5. Hearing of thy love and faith, which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And in verse 7, he said, For we have great joy and consolation in thy love, because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother. And there in verse 7 is the same joining together of joy and refreshment. And now he hits that same theme at the end. I will have joy and I will have refreshment when I see how you act rightly towards 
uh, Onesimus and you don't come down hard on him and you don't bear a grudge against him, but you're forgiving and you're loving toward him. Second of these six quick lessons. In verse 21, Paul expresses his confidence that Philemon will go above and beyond and do even more than Paul is asking or expecting. And as I've already suggested, I think this is at the heart of the final words in this passage. So he says in verse 21, having confidence in thy obedience. I'm confident you're going to do what's right, Philemon. I wrote unto thee, knowing that thou wilt also do more than I say. You won't do just the minimum, I know. But you'll go above and beyond. And what Paul is saying here is, I really expect you're going to follow the Christian way. You're not going to just do the bare minimum. You're not going to be a a clock watcher. You're going to go above and beyond. And along these lines, I was thinking about what Christ taught in the Sermon on the Mount. And often in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ taught his disciples that especially when dealing with adversaries, when dealing with enemies, we should do, we should kind of kill them with kindness. We should do more for them than they deserve. Uh, So, for example, in Matthew 5, uh, verses 40 and following, Christ had taught, And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, give him thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain or two. That's where we get the phrase, going the extra mile. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. And if that's what Christ taught about how we should treat enemies... If that's what Christ expected, the way that his disciples would treat their adversaries, then how much more should this be expected in their treatment of our Christian brothers and sisters? Third little lesson is in verse 22. Paul says, but with all, prepare me also a lodging. Now, this is very practical, right? Paul's writing this letter. First of all, he has the hope he's going to get out of prison. And uh, he says, hey, get, a, get the spare room ready for me. Because when I get out, I'm going to come and I'm going to see you. And I, and I, and I want to, to stay with you. Uh, and and what, one of the things we see here is that Paul asks for hospitality. Um, this statement reminds us of the Christian virtue and discipline of hospitality. It's certainly expected of the officers of the church, of the elders. In 1 Timothy 3.2, Paul said that a bishop or elder in the church should be given to hospitality. And the word in Greek means literally to be a lover of strangers. Um, and in uh, 1 Peter 4.9, the apostle Peter exhorted, use hospitality one to another without grudging. It's interesting, he says, not just extend hospitality, but do it without grudging. That's going above and beyond, isn't it? You might just do it out of duty, but do you do it without grudging? Are you a lover of strangers? And so um, there's a little lesson in there for us about what our mindset should be. Fourth spiritual lesson, the second half of verse 22, Paul says, for I trust 
that through your prayers I shall be given unto you. Um, he's already making, you know, lodging reservations because he expects he's going to get out of, out of imprisonment. This is kind of like bringing your umbrella to the prayer meeting where your church has a prayer meeting to, for God to send rain when there's a drought. And only one person brings their umbrella because they actually believe God will answer the prayer. Um, Paul is asking him to pray he would be released from imprisonment and to show his certitude that God would, would be willing to answer that prayer. He's already making, hey, hey, prepare a place for me to stay because we're praying for me to get out of prison. I know God's going to let me out so that I can come and stay with you. But uh, this, the, the fourth lesson that is taught here is Paul acknowledges his dependence upon the prayers of his fellow believers. Paul expected that God would use the means of prayer, the prayers of the saints, to bring about his release from prison. <clears throat> Let me ask you this as you meditate upon what is said here. Do you believe in the power of prayer? Do you believe in the necessity of prayer? Do you give adequate time to prayer, both personally and corporately? Do you attend the prayer meetings of the church? Brothers, I trust that through your prayers I shall be given unto you. The fifth point is in verses 23 and 24, where Paul brings greetings from various brothers who are with him. And this reminds us of the importance of fellowship in the gospel. Christianity is not an individual spiritual pursuit. It's, although we should practice spiritual disciplines, we should read the Bible privately, we should pray privately, we should do works of mercy that no one else knows about. Um, but Christianity is a common faith. It requires fellowship. It requires fellow believers. It re we, we, we can't functionally act as Christians apart from being part of a church, belonging to a church, being part of the fellowship of believers. And Paul, the apostle Paul, did not exercise his ministry in a vacuum. He's always making reference to the people who were with him, the people who were around him. And so we see this in verses 23 and 24. There salute the Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, Marcus, Aristarchus, Demas, Lucas, my fellow laborers. And so he lists five persons here. Uh, Epaphras, he calls his fellow prisoner, somebody apparently imprisoned with him. Um, and, and then in verse 24, he mentions Marcus. Who is Marcus? It's probably Mark, John Mark, who was the companion of Peter and Paul and who wrote the gospel of Mark. Um, Aristarchus, we'll see about, more about him in a moment. Demas, we'll talk more about him. Lucas, who is this? This is Luke. This is Luke the evangelist. So Mark and Luke were there with Paul, and later they will write their Gospels. Now, uh, it's interesting if we turn over, if, you, if you're there in Philemon, turn backwards in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians. 
And um, most people who read through uh, Paul's writings believe that Philemon was in the church at Colossae. And part of the reason they believe that is because in Colossians, which is the letter to the church at Colossae, which was a place in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, um, he mentions some of these same persons. So look at Colossians chapter 4. And let's just look at a few of these. Look at verse 9, Colossians 4, 9. So he's sending a greeting here. And he says, With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. You think this is the same Onesimus for whom Paul had interceded in the book of Philemon? And he says he's one of you. He's a Colossian. He's from Colossae. Then look at verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you. Aristarchus, that name showed up, didn't it, in verse 24. Then he continues, And Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas, touching whom ye receive commandments, if he come unto you, receive him. Here's part of the backstory on Mark. If you read Acts chapter 13, Mark had set off with Paul on what is sometimes called Paul's first missionary journey. He went with Paul and Barnabas. But for some unexplained reason, in the midst of that trip, Mark left. He quit. He was a quitter. He turned back. And Paul wasn't happy with him. And when Paul set off to go on his second missionary journey, it's described in Acts 15, Barnabas wanted to bring Mark with them again. And Paul said, no. He, he turned back from us. He's a quitter. And Paul took a man named Silas, and Paul and Silas went in one direction, and Barnabas and Mark went in another direction. But this indicates to us that somehow Paul had been reconciled to Mark. And maybe, that's, maybe it's important that Mark gets mentioned in the letter to Philemon to say, you know, I had a beef with, with Mark at one point, but we were able to be reconciled. Just as you've had, you have a beef with Onesimus, and you can be reconciled to him. So we've got the mention of Mark. Um, look at verse 12 of Colossians 4. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. And this is the same Epaphras mentioned in Philemon Verse 23. And then look at verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. And by the way, it's from this verse that we know that Luke had been trained as a doctor, as a physician. And we sometimes talk about Dr. Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke. But here he's mentioned in the letter to the church at, of the Colossians. Um, and... And then uh, he's mentioned as well in Philemon. And then Demas. Now, Demas is a sad story. Because Demas is mentioned positively in Philemon. He's mentioned positively here in um, um, Colossians. But sadly, something happened to Demas. 
And if we look over in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10, Paul tells us some disturbing news about Demas. He says, For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica. Demas apparently, for what reason? He loved this world. He walked away from the Christian faith. And we never hear anything else about him. And we would hope that maybe he came to his senses at some point, but left as it is, it seems that he shows himself to be someone who actually never was a Christian, was a false professor. He'd even served alongside Paul, but he did not show the genuineness of his conversion by his persevering or abiding in the faith. And so he was a false professor and became an apostate. And that should be a grave warning to us. And if you're still in Colossians, just one more reference to tie it back to Philemon. Look at verse 17 of Colossians 4. And say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. And look over again and remember Philemon verse 2. And our beloved Athea and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and of the church in thy house. So Archippus was apparently one of the elders in the church at Colossae. And so these last few greetings... Again, tie in the connections, give us a context for where Philemon was. But really, most importantly, what it emphasizes to us again is that we are not Lone Ranger Christians. We're not just riding along on the range by ourselves, uh, maybe with one tonto by our side. Uh, We are meant to be in churches. We are meant to be in fellowship. We are meant to have common experiences with brothers and sisters in Christ. That is the way you live the Christian life. The sixth point, verse 25. Finally, Paul simply commends Philemon and the church in his house, I think the church of the Colossians, to the grace of God. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. That's often the way Paul ends his letters. He prays for grace for grace to the recipients. In the book of Acts, in Acts 20, there's a scene where Paul drew in the the elders of of the church of Ephesus and he gave a kind of a pep talk to them as he was heading off to Rome where he knew he would be to Jerusalem, where he knew he would be probably be arrested. And he, he said to them in Acts 20, verse 32, And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. And that's what Paul meant with these brief words. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. May the grace of God build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are the saints of God, those who are made holy by God. Well, as we conclude this passage and this letter, we might well examine it ourselves. And I think chiefly, as I've already noted, we might go back And look at verse 21. Having confidence in thy obedience, I wrote unto thee, knowing that thou wilt also do more than I say. 
we must ask ourselves, have I been a mere clock watcher? Have I been a time server in my ministry and labors for Christ? Have I sometimes been tempted to do the bare minimum to get by in my charitable duties towards others? Have I sort of paid the minimal due that I feel like I have to pay? Or by God's grace, might I do even more than would be asked or expected, not out of necessity, but willingly, not to the glory of myself or any man, but to the glory of Christ alone. Amen? Let me invite you to stand together. Let's join in prayer. Gracious God, help us to learn, even from this little letter, more of how we should live as believers. If someone has wronged us or we've come into a disagreement with someone or if it's just the regular wear and tear of life in our family or life in our church, help us to have a a godly spirit, the spirit of Christ, uh, to do uh, more than the minimum as would be expected, but to serve with, with superabundant grace, with superabundant mercy, with superabundant kindness, and to do so uh, not merely out of duty, but willingly. And so uh, help us, O oh God, to uh, be more like Christ and to be more like his choice servants uh, whom we see exemplified in the scriptures. We ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.